Welcome to the Trad Dads Podcast, where we examine cultural and political issues through the lens of traditional thought. All right, so today I want to talk a little bit about free trade and the risks that it entails. So I've been mulling this over in my head for probably a month, but it uh, seems like a really opportune time to talk about it. So I want to kind of frame this properly because I think there's there's some opportunities with people kind of uh, starting to doubt maybe a little more of a liberal worldview. And uh, so just to, to talk through some of this in terms that um, a lot of liberal people might have uh, experience with and might uh, be more familiar with. So in economics, we have this concept of specialization and it's, it's very uh, commonly uh, discussed in classes. It's kind of a bedrock principle. You get this idea that uh, specialization leads to our ability to um, increase our wealth by uh, trading with each other, right? And so the, the standard model is that, you know, uh, one, one person can make you know, five bananas and six apples, and then the other person can make, um, you know, three bananas and nine apples uh, in an hour. And so they benefit. You basically do the math and you figure out, well, if one person specializes in their competitive advantage, or their, excuse me, their comparative advantage, and the other specializes in their comparative advantage, even if one person is better at everything than the other, then it actually still makes sense for them to specialize and for them to then trade. And what happens is they both end up with more of the good. And so this is, again, this is something you learn very early on in an economics course. Uh, it's at the beginning of every textbook and every undergraduate, you know, basic econ textbook. It's the beginning of every uh, kind of course on economics you would see online or whatever. And so, um, this is just the way people often think, right? So what happens is even if we get more complicated, um, models or more complicated circumstances, we're, we're always, I think as economists, you know, economists are always kind of still thinking in terms of the basics. Um, you know, we like simple models in the sense that they're, uh, you know, they, they're, they're parsimonious and they're mathematically elegant and they make few assumptions and stuff like this. Um, and so that tends, I think, to make economists and, and those who are educated by economists uh, sort of prone to fall back on these basic uh, models of reality. And my biggest problem with this is that it doesn't take into account any kind of risk. Right? You'll notice that that... Um, that example, you know, where just, you know, one person makes this many of each thing and this other person makes a different amount of each thing. And so they should just trade, right? So you notice that that's very static, right? It's like the two, um, you know, the amounts that they can make never change. And there's never any risk that one of their trading partners will be gone. Um, so there's no, there's no risk built in. There's no uncertainty built into this at all. And a couple of weeks ago when I did the episode on uh, the 
uh, well, it was really an, an episode on Taleb, honestly, and and kind of his way of thinking about uncertainty and and the the Chinese coronavirus. Um, you know, I I I talked about risk and and uncertainty and some of these issues, and I just want to kind of put it in context with this trade thing. So I'm very interested in risk. It's something I've studied a lot um, as a professional economist. It's something that I'm always thinking about. Um, and and it, it always shocks me how little we include this in kind of the basic economic education that we give to students. And I'm not really sure why, uh, besides the fact that it's just tougher to model r- realistic risk than it is to just sort of generate and um, pass along these relatively simple models. Um, and so anyway, there's this whole idea of specialization and trade, right? And so what happens is, is then when we get into a discussion of international trade, then the same concept is essentially applied more broadly to um, international trade, right? As complex as that is, right? Every time you have a conversation with someone about practical policy and, and restrictions on trade and stuff like that, they're always going to fall back on this basic um, specialization and trade comparative advantage story. Even though we're talking about international trade, we're not talking about you know one person and another person trading. We're talking about trade between thousands or uh, you know millions of companies across international borders in an incredibly complex fashion, right? So it's it's certainly not the same thing, and especially these days, you know, we have international supply chains where you know a product might be in three or four countries as it's being produced, and so you know the the problem I have is that this uh, when we talk about supply chains, it's a totally different kind of story than this whole uh, specialization and trade thing. It's just not the same kind of thing. A supply chain uh, has risk in it. And what's interesting is that, you know, if you look at business scholars in kind of the management field or just, you know, maybe even more narrowly to say, you know, strategy or supply chain management, you know, they, they will talk about risk and they will talk about, you know, the possibility for problems to arise. And obviously we're, we're dealing with that right now with this coronavirus thing, right? The, the virus came from China and, uh, you know, China holds massive amount of our supply chain for many things, including, you know, crucial parts of our uh, medicine and stuff like that. And so now it's like all of a sudden now everybody realizes that there's this risk problem. There's this uncertainty. It's like, oh, wait a minute. Oh, this was the eventuality that certain people were concerned about. And I just saw Peter Navarro on Tucker Carlson's show uh, this evening. This is uh, March 18th for reference. And, you know, the first thing Tucker says to him is, you know, when you were appointed, uh, you know, Peter Navarro is a Harvard economist, I think. When you were appointed, Tucker says to him, you, you know, people were, you know, mocking you and all this stuff because you were talking about trade in a certain way. And I just got Peter Navarro's book, uh, Death by China, I think. And I'm so, I'm really pumped to read that. But it's kind of interesting where, uh, you know, Navarro, he, he, he was mocked. And I, I remember this so clearly that, you know, the, the economics profession was like, oh, my gosh, Trump picked Peter Navarro. And, oh, Peter Navarro, isn't he such a rube? Isn't he such an idiot? Because he thinks that, you know, free trade is bad and he doesn't think free trade good like me. 
Um, and it's sort of like very, <laughs> I mean, kind of a sad vindication for him, but it is a vindication nonetheless, right? This whole coronavirus thing is like, yeah, I guess Peter was right. I guess, you know, the, the sort of common sense of worrying about risk and worrying about uncertainty in international trade um, is, uh, is important. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's so funny because when you think about this, shifting back to the political side for a minute, when you think about this from a liberal perspective, right, you're not allowed to think of countries as entities, right? That's nationalism and nationalism bad, right? So we're only allowed to think of individual people as entities, right? We're not allowed to think of families as entities, right? Because of course only individuals choose, right? I guess maybe this is more libertarian, but um, so maybe a more extreme version of liberalism, I suppose. But still, you definitely have this liberal mindset um, that, you know, even in even in sort of the left liberal world and the far left, you know, nations cannot be entities. That's bad. Uh, but the reality is that that is exactly what the simple specialization and trade model assumes is that you have these two entities. And in the sense that, um, you know, we have real politique and we have uh, national policy um, and that's just the way it is. Uh, there are national entities right? Maybe in the world of economic theory, you know, nations don't make choices, blah, blah, blah. Well, okay, but their leaders do. And those choices have huge effects. And in this case, and I mean, anyone who's thinking about risk is going to think about the fact that um, there was always risk there. And it was just a matter of time before something happened that disrupted all of this stuff. And it could have been anything. It could have been a lot of, lots of things besides a sort of viral pandemic, but it's, it's such an interesting, um, case. You have even, you know, even people who, um, you know, really are just sharp people. They're sitting here saying, no, we can't, we can't close down. We can't have, you know, we can't change our, our trade policy. We can't let this change us, blah, 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 all this principle stuff. When it's like, well, you know, principles are fine, but you've just had the wrong ones. Um, and so, you know, this, this whole idea of um, specialization and trade happening at this national level is so interesting because, you know, when we think about, okay, how is the risk thing going to affect this story about specialization and trade and comparative advantage? Well, when we bring it down to an individual level, right, where the theory is, you know, start it starts out, right, where it's explained to you when you're starting out learning economics, it's the, the risk thing maybe doesn't seem so important to you because when we're talking about individuals or when we're talking about even just like a business and maybe considering that to be an individual, we kind of understand that there is a community around us to help support us when something does go wrong. And so of course, you know, I'm, I'm going too far with something that's just intended to treat, you know, to teach people basic economics. But the reality is that this whole specialization and trade thing can ignore, um, comparative advantage can ignore risk to an extent because, you know, at the individual level or at the business level, we have families, we have communities, um, we have support mechanisms, 
we have in, in, in more traditional societies, right? We have the incentive to sort of save some money for a rainy day. Um, and so this whole idea of specialization in trade makes more sense because it's like, well, heck I can, I can, um, you know, I can increase my wealth. I can increase the amount I can, that I'm able to get a hold of, um, by specializing and by sort of, uh, participating in a, in a market with my, uh, comparative advantage. But the problem is that when you then extrapolate that to the national level, all of a sudden, that whole idea of support systems, family, um, savings, and all those sorts of things—they—they certainly—they—they they change. Um, we could say that you know, individuals have support systems; they have friends, but countries have nothing but potential enemies or actual enemies, right? Um, and I'm, you know, I'm not an international relations scholar or anything like that. I don't know anything about that stuff. But it strikes me as uh, quite plain that, you know, <laughs> while you might be able to trust your neighbor or your friend or your family, um, it's probably a bad idea for you to trust another country, another government with, uh, you know, the, the ability for their incentives to change uh, very quickly. Uh, against your favor. And so if that's the case, if we have a case like this where, you know, we, we've entrusted to an extent our supply chain to this country that, you know, the sensible people would have told you was risky from the get-go. Even if they knew nothing about, you know, oh, specialization in trade and comparative advantage, right? Even if they knew nothing about that, they would just say, well, yeah, I guess, you know, you think you're getting sort of blood out of a stone, but uh, you got to be careful because, um, you know, they could turn right around on you. And it's kind of funny because I just saw a, a video on Twitter that was um, back in, back during the Obama years, um, there was some report that came out that said four out of five of our vaccines are, you know, made in China or they're partly made in China or something like that. And they've got the Health and Human Services Secretary, Kathleen Sebelius, on TV. And uh, the uh, the TV host goes, well, what do you think about this? Like, isn't there a risk here where, you know, if China has four-fifths of our uh, vaccines? And she's just, and Sebelius is just, she doesn't know how to respond to this. She's just hemming and hawing and shaking, and, and she doesn't know what to say. Because it's such a fundamental, basic thought process, right? There is uncertainty here. This could go wrong. And we don't know how to fix it. There's there's not much you can do at that scale when you have 300 million people at the time and 350 million now in the country. And you have something as complex as a supply chain built around a country who does not have your best interest at heart. And in fact, doesn't even treat you as an ally. Um, so it's it's kind of, you, you know, you can... You can have all these woke platitudes all day long, but at some point, the reality of the situation is going to hit you, and uh, the world is just simply not as safe as you want it to be. Um, and so that's kind of the next thing I want to bring up, is that when we're thinking about this dichotomy between um, businesses and individuals in this sense of uh, specialization and trade and the support system they have versus countries that don't... Um, it kind of struck me as 
uh, it, it sounded a lot like uh, another sort of commentary I'd heard on this before. And of all people, this came from Brian Kaplan, who is a noted uh, libertarian economist. And he, he, he has written, and I don't know if he still does, but he has written for a, a very popular economics blog called EconLib, or EconLog, I guess. And he had this post one time where he was talking about the fact that a liberal worldview makes a lot of sense when the world is safe, right? When everything is safe, we can talk about banning guns. We can talk about not preparing for, you know, bad things to happen. We can talk about, you know, shrieking on television all day long about, you know, every little injustice that we perceive in the world. Um, but that, that all makes sense when the world is really safe, right? I can worry about, you know, some discomfort if, uh, my basic needs are met, right? It's this sort of thing. So the liberal mindset, um, and he, he, you know, and obviously the framing is a little different between him and me, but you know, for him, he was calling liberal, like, uh, you know, almost left wing. Um, whereas, you know, in his framing, he says, you know, the conservative worldview, I would say, uh, I don't know, traditional worldview, um, it, just because of the weirdness of these terms, uh, you know, a more traditional worldview, uh, understands that the world is not safe, no matter how safe you think it is, no matter how low the variation in incomes have, has been, no matter how, um, how long it's been, how many locks you have on your door, how many long, how long it's been since you've been attacked, how many locks are on your door, um, how many police are roaming around trying to make everything safe, right? There is risk there. The world is not safe. The reality of our lives is that things can go wrong at the blink of an eye. And especially in a world where no one thinks that's possible. Um, and so you notice that more right-leaning type of people are, you know, they make completely different policy arguments about a lot of these things like firearms or, um, you know, preparation for these types of events. Um, you know, I, so you can see that the mindset difference results in not only a difference of sort of how they approach their own lives, but also how they think policy should, should be different. Right. So now all of a sudden Peter Navarro makes a ton of sense because even though he's not operating in the sort of approved, uh, you know, elite economics opinion, um, it actually makes a ton of sense what he's saying. We should prepare for these types of events. We should worry about this kind of risk, you know, supply chain risk and stuff like this. We should worry about, um, how much of our uh, lives is tied in with China. We should worry about how much we sort of implicitly trust them and how much we allow companies to operate um, with them. And, and you can see the extremes that these things go to. Like, you know, with the protests from Hong Kong, uh, you know, we had, we had NBA players and NBA coaches complaining because, um, you know, people, <laughs> people in the U.S. were on the side of Hong Kong. And against the Chinese government. It's like, really? The, the, the NBA is so beholden to the Chinese communists that they can't even allow, you know, they, 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 they gripe when people, when people criticize them. Uh, you know, I remember uh, Steve Kerr, I think. Um, he's a coach in the NBA. Uh, and he says, uh, 
you know, that, oh, well, what about, what about the crimes of the United States? And it's like, dude, are you insane? Like the Chinese communists have concentration camps and they just murder people for fun. You know, you're, you're way off the reservation, dude. Um, so I think that, I think that makes the case here is that what's, what's so, what's so interesting. I mean, I could say a million things. I could talk about Jonathan Hyde stuff. Um, I, I think, uh, you talk about the, um, uh, I mean, Tim pools had some interesting videos lately about this whole, you know, all of a sudden now, uh, you know, when LA County is basically, uh, you know, they've stopped enforcing basic criminal law there. Uh, now all of a sudden everybody in LA County, uh, you know, who has any kind of money is, is lined up in front of a gun store. And it's like, see what you did to yourself. You know, uh, maybe your worldview is a little messed up. So, you know, it's so many examples of this basic reality of, risk and uncertainty, right? Uh, risk being, you know, sort of, uh, foreseeable problems, whereas uncertainty being, uh, unforeseeable problems or, or issues with, you know, you not knowing what you don't know kind of thing. Um, you know, to me, this applies very easily to free trade and restrictions in trade, even if you pay for them with lower GDP per capita or less income or, less efficiency or however you want to frame that if you pay for it with or if that's if that's the cost then maybe the benefit is lower risk maybe the benefit is fewer situations like this where you have a pandemic virus in your country any other kind of supply chain disruption could be the same kind of thing when you're leaning on free trade so heavily and of course, there are side benefits, right? We wouldn't have so many people in Appalachia and in other areas of the country killing themselves to the extent that we're actually pulling down our death or our uh, uh, um, average life expectancy from deaths of despair and economic turmoil. Um, you know, maybe we would have, maybe these people would have, you know, maybe these these teenagers in, uh, you know, rural uh, Ohio would have their fathers. Um, because their dad didn't just figure that, you know, well, I, I just can't take it anymore. I don't have a job. And, you know, my job just got outsourced or my job just got outsourced to a robot. Um, and there's just, I just can't handle anything anymore. They might as well have the life insurance, right? I mean, this is the kind of thing that's happening to people. And it's like, you mentioned this to people and it's like, my GDP, well, okay, well, who gives a crap, right? I mean, this is the fundamental concept of finance, right? Risk requires a reward. If I, if we have, um, you know, higher incomes and stuff like this, well, generally speaking, the way you're going to do that is with higher risk. And this is a, a very clear example of that principle happening right in front of our faces. So I want to finish off by taking another jab at Taleb and this whole, um, popularity of the the kind of fat tail statistical jargon and just kind of try to make that a little plainer this whole idea of fat tails is like well you know you're you're perceiving the world as having um you know a certain distribution of outcomes right with a certain risk level implied in that distribution of outcomes and what um you know, what Taleb talks about and a lot of other people who have kind of latched onto a lot of the stuff that he's been talking about. Not that it was not, that, not that it's anything revolutionary. Again, I, I don't think it is. Um, 
but just that it's popular. And so we have this idea of, you know, fat tails and, oh, well, see, you, you underestimated the probability of these extreme events, right? And um, the reality is that in most realms where this is even, uh, uh, you know, something that, you know, most of us can really even conceive of, right? Um, <laughs> this whole fat tails thing is just basically your, your, uh, your grandma from, you know, who's a greatest gin, uh, person, you know, she's born in 1925. Um, just basically, you know, that's what she told you, right? Her wisdom was, yeah, don't eat, don't eat cookies. You can eat steak and eggs all you want, but don't eat cookies or you get fat, right? Um, it, she's, you know, work hard and, uh, save your money and you'll be okay. Right. Uh, don't worry about going to school, uh, and going to, you know, becoming some highfalutin person, just live simply. Right. And, you know, from a risk standpoint, Hey, don't do stupid stuff because it's a bad idea. Right. Don't trust people who you don't, who, are, who don't have your best interest at heart, you know, live near home, stay near your family people stay around people who care about you because they're going to be dependable. Right? This is all fat tails discussions, right? This is all avoiding the fat tails. And like I said, your grandma knew that maybe your grandma's a boomer. Maybe you're younger than me. Your grandma was a boomer, whatever. Um, and so maybe this wisdom didn't get carried down. But the point is that, uh, previous generations did understand this stuff very well. It was intuitive, this was intuitive to people who were uh, sort of cut from a more, um, uh, I don't know, uh, reactionary or traditional mindset. And uh, we've lost that, you know, partly. I mean, many would say thanks to the boomers, eh, you know, sure, uh, you know, they certainly didn't help anything but uh, on this front. But I would say that it's, it's, it's the mindset, you know, maybe they brought that mindset uh you know, maybe they accelerated it or something fine, but it's really this liberal mindset that just says, well, we can, uh, we can just finance that risk with, uh, with greater income. It's like, well, no, that's not how human nature works. People don't actually do that. Right. People don't save. Uh, many people can't, many people can't because of the way the liberal system works. Right. Um, and so you get, uh, when you have a problem like this, and first of all, you, you may not have had the problem in the first place if you'd had borders the way they should be. And even if you did, you might be in a lot better place to take care of it if, you know, we had communities that could, uh, you know, small communities that could do what they needed to do to isolate cases or, uh, you know, help small businesses get through this kind of problem or help, you know, poor people and, and those who don't have a place to go. Um, you know, not that those resources don't exist, but we're all looking to the national government, the federal government, because none of these communities have the authority to do this stuff. None of these communities have the resources to do this stuff. Um, because again, everything is built on trade and free trade and everybody just specialize and do your own thing. And no one worry about the possible eventualities of how bad this stuff can get. So, um, you know, again, it's, this is a perfect case study for taking care of risk and making sure that the wisdom from the right wing mindset is forefront in your mind when you're thinking about 
policy issues that promise you higher incomes and don't discuss risk. So with that, I thank you for listening. I, I appreciate Rolf, uh, as always, for his monthly donations. I hope uh, more of you uh, would want to support the podcast financially. You can do that over on anchor.fm slash dads. You can also, uh, if you're listening on YouTube, swap over and listen to the audio podcast because I do have an ad that runs on there that uh, that helps a little bit. So I do appreciate that. And also uh, share the show if you think uh, this is valuable content. Appreciate your time. Thanks for listening to the Trad Dads podcast. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app and consider giving us a five-star rating on iTunes. It really helps us out.